Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With. Conversations with your favourite theatre actors and creatives. Hello, I'm Mikey Worrell. This week's guest has lived the dream of originating roles in the West End, transferring to Broadway and touring the United States. His performance as Bert in the original London and Broadway productions of Mary Poppins gained him Olivier and Tony Award nominations and a Drama Desk Award win. In 2018, he received his second Tony nomination and won a second Drama Desk Award for playing Squidward in SpongeBob SquarePants the Musical on Broadway. Since then, he's played the Grinch in Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas the Musical, Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast at the Paper Mill Playhouse in New Jersey, and the title role in Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Here's my conversation with Gavin Lee. I feel I should just caveat this whole conversation with the fact that my boyfriend is the biggest Mary Poppins fan, possibly in the world. (laughs) Well, you see, he has a new Mary Poppins now, doesn't he? Like, since it's opened again. He does. He practically moved into the Prince Edward. He's very happy that it... Oh, he was very happy until until we went into lockdown. Yeah, yeah. So there will be a few Poppins questions. That's fine by me. That's the, that's the biggie. <laughs> How have you been, first of all? Good. I mean, as good as I can be being an actor with a pandemic like this. So like, I can't work. You know, I feel very grateful to um, the technology we have. You know, if we had this pandemic 20 years ago, we wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be able to teach online. I've been lucky that I've been able to do a lot of sort of private coaching of dance class and song interpretation class um, and lots of Q&As for various groups kind of all around the world, actually. Mostly my students are in America, but I've got the occasional student in France and Italy and some in England. So I'm filling my time with a little bit of teaching, which is the thing I always fell back on when, you know, when I didn't have an acting job. So thank God for the technology so that I can carry on doing that there doesn't seem to be an end in sight which is real depressing but you know it'll be back eventually so we just have to take kind of take day by day rather than month by month because then it gets a little bit too depressing so day by day what's going to happen next week what's going to happen next week you know rather than what's going to happen next year (laughs) I'm assuming you've been in contact with friends and family over here to compare the situation in America and, and the UK yes I mean the annoying thing is the two countries that I'm allowed to go and live in are the two worst countries in the world for COVID. So you're like, great. Yeah, so there would be no point upending my family and going to come back to England because it seems like England's in just as bad a state as the US. So luckily for us, I live about half an hour from New York City in the suburbs, but we decided to rent out our house because there's no need for us to be near New York at this time. And my wife's family have a house in South Dakota and a little lake house in Minnesota. So I'm spending my, the last two months I've been in uh, the Midwest and we're heading back to New Jersey where I live just to kind of pick up winter clothes. And then we'll be heading back here uh, until spring of next year because that making some money on some renting my house was the kind of the easiest way to try and make some money. <laughs> sure, sure. That's where we're at. That's so, I mean, as a Brit who's only ever lived in this country, it sounds so wild that you're having this American adventure. Yeah. When you were a kid growing up, did you ever dream of living in the Midwest or did you even know it existed? No. 
I grew up in Woodbridge, which is two hours east of London. And mm-hmm. my grandparents, both sets of grandparents lived down in London. So we would go and see them on the weekend, but not that often. It was a big deal to drive two hours to London to see the grandparents, a real big deal. And it's, it amazes me now that, you know, on Saturday, we're about to drive 23 hours to get back home from the Midwest. 23. And we'll oh do it over God. two days. We're going to stay in a hotel like after the first 12 hours. We're hoping to get to Cleveland on Saturday night before getting back home. And it's just weird that even for, for me to drive to Minneapolis, where we're going to tonight, is four hours. But, but that's nothing because it, the country's so enormous that everyone's used to getting in their car and driving a good few hours. I mean, for me in England, four hours from my hometown would get me to Manchester. And it's like, I never went to Manchester as a kid. It was like so far away. <laughs> and Americans can't believe that, you know, I can get to, you know, English people can get to Paris in like three hours. And the majority of English people don't do that. And so it's just a different mindset. And I think my, my head got around it when me and my wife were both on the Mary Poppins tour, uh, the first US tour. So I did two years of Mary Poppins on Broadway after London. And then myself and Ashley Brown, who was the first Mary Poppins on Broadway, were asked to go and open the tour. And my wife auditioned and got in the show. So we had this amazing year and a half touring the whole of America, going to cities that no Brit would normally bother going to. You know, I feel, I feel British people, if you're going to come to America, you're going to go probably first of all to Orlando to go to Disney World. Sure, sure. So Florida for a hot, nice, hot holiday or New York to perhaps come and see the sights and go to Broadway. You might go to the West Coast, to California, but, and maybe Chicago. But, you know, I was going to, you know, Houston and Dallas and New Orleans and Tampa and Washington, D.C. And so it was an amazing year and a half that me and my wife got to tour in a brilliant show, Mary Poppins. And it was great to see this wonderful country because you can see why... I think something like 85% of Americans don't have a passport. And at first glance, you kind of think, don't you want to see the world? But now I've gone round this country, you can see every different style of landscape and every type of weather. You can ski in the mountains, you can go to gorgeous beaches. Like they kind of have everything in this country. So I can understand why a lot of Americans don't bother to ever leave the country in their lifetime because they have everything here. <laughs> and then we're here we are with like the Lincolnshire coast. <laughs> so yeah. like, as good as it gets for <laughs> yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly that was it for me in my childhood. Well, no, I, you know, as a kid, I went down to Cornwall a couple of times. They have pretty gorgeous beaches down in Cornwall. Do you know, I've never been to Cornwall, but I grew up in Yorkshire. See, there you go. <laughs> And it's probably because you're like, that's like five hours away. It was too far. Exactly. We would go to the Lake District and that was it. (laughs) That was it. Isn't it funny how you're you're just, your head is around, I can only go two hours, but it would only take you six hours to get to Scotland from London, you know? So it's, it's, it's a very different feel here in the enormous country that is the United States. Do you know what, actually, I saw something on Twitter a few months ago that was really funny. It was, in America, you can drive two hours and you can be in the same state, in the same place, the same city even, 
in the UK, you can drive two hours and the accents change twice and they call a, bre- a bread roll a different thing. That, yeah, that is the weird thing. On our first day when we drove to the Midwest, it felt like we were driving through Pennsylvania forever. It's such a big, long state. And we were like, can we mm-hmm. please just get into Ohio? I think that's the next state. My geography is not that great. But um, yes, vast differences in sizes between England and America. <laughs> Hugely. Let's start with Mary Poppins. I know you worked extensively before that, but Poppins was was the big the big thing that changed your life. Yes, it was. Up until Poppins, I had played a few little roles in 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 little West End shows. Um, not little, I mean, not long running West End shows. I did uh, the whole run of Crazy for You, and that was a big deal for me because I was a swing when I started Crazy for You at the Prince Edward. And I stayed a swing for the whole of the run, but I kind of gradually worked my way up every year. Like the, I was a swing to start off with, then I was the dance captain, and then I was the second understudy to the lead, and then the first understudy to the lead. And by the time the show went out on its, the UK tour, I was playing the lead. And so I always say Crazy View was a very big deal because it was the first time I was an understudy and I got bumped up to play the role eventually. And so that's a big milestone for me. But then of course, to get Bert in Mary Poppins to be the first person to originate a role in a Cameron Macintosh Disney show was pretty awesome. And so exciting to be with creatives, Richard Eyre, Matthew Bourne, Stephen Meir, who were so open to allowing the actor to bring what they had. You know, I've worked with the odd director where they tell you where to go and they give you a lot of notes about this character needs to be like this, like this, like this, like this. And it was so refreshing to be able to create something and kind of be left to your own devices of where you wanted to go with the character and not get too many notes. I mean, I'm always up for getting notes, but it was nice to think, oh, I must be going on the right track for what they want because it was a great rehearsal period for me. And I had no idea when I got that job when Cameron McIntosh on the last, the final callback, um, recall, see, I'm, a, I'm in America now, I say callback instead of my last recall, where he came up on stage after I'd done all my bits of script and my songs, and he says, uh, you, you know, he like shook my hand and went, okay, we'd like to offer you the role. I mean, to get it, to get given the role there and then, at the end of your last audition, rather than waiting for your agent to then call, it was so awesome. And then he said, of course, you can't tell anyone for about five months because we're not making a press announcement. And you're like, oh, gosh, because you want you to just, I wanted to run out of the Garrick Theatre. I was, the, my last audition was at the Garrick Theatre with Laura Michelle Kelly, the original Mary Poppins, who, who had already been given the role. So she was there reading with the last two birds and just wanted to run out, run out and tell the world. But I, obviously I called my wife and I called my mother. And that's kind of the only people I told until there was a press release. But I had no idea when I, when I got that job that it was gonna take up eight years of my life. I mean, I will forever be so grateful that that show, I was very lucky every two years, I got to do something completely different. So I did two years of the show in London at the Prince Edward. So the Prince mm-hmm. Edward for me, I feel is my theater because I did three years with Crazy For You and then two years with um, Mary Poppins. I love the Prince Edward theater and I love that Mary Poppins is back there now that's just very cool but um two years in london two years on broadway two years on national tour in the us and then two years back on broadway so 
every two years I kind of got a real new feel for the show and a, a completely different set of cast. So it always kept it as fresh as it could for me. You know, it's, it's impossible to keep a show, a character really fresh when you've been doing it for eight years. But that certainly oh, yeah. helped. That certainly helped having a, a new cast and a new theatre to do the show in every two years. I read that you originally auditioned to be the cover, but and then you got the part. Is that, is that right? That is right. I didn't know this. I wasn't told this. I thought I was going in for the part, but the story goes that on the creative team, the only people I knew, I knew Stephen Meir very well because I'd done a lot of mm -hmm. his shows. He was in the original cast of Crazy For You. So that's when I first met him. We were both in an ensemble and he went on to become the associate choreographer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I know Stephen very well and I knew Anthony Drew, who was the lyricist for the new songs. I'd worked with them in a show called Snoopy at the Watermill. Uh, where they had directed and choreographed. They told me later that they, they thought I would be great for the role of Bert. And they knew that if they kept pumping me up to Cameron McIntosh, like before I came in for my audition, that wouldn't go well. Cameron, you know, understandably, he's the producer. He likes to find his lead, leading lady and his leading man and his cat. He likes to find them. And because they knew that Cameron didn't know me they were kind of like putting my name forward for an understudy because he didn't know who I was and so I came in for my audition and thankfully I must have done quite a good job because Cameron kind of jumped up at the end of the audition and went I'd like you to go straight to the Cameron offices and work with my pianist and learn this song and this song and come back tomorrow so it was a good thing I think that I was kind of being prepped for the understudy and then Cameron liked what I was doing and then I was very lucky for four recalls later I got the role and the actually the, re the really cool thing is at the same time I was auditioning for understudy the first understudy for Leo in the producers which opened roughly the same time at the at Jury Lane and so I had these two shows that I was having callbacks for re recalls for and it kind of gave my my agent enjoyed um, having to tell the producers that oh Gavin won't be taking understudy Leo, which was the role I would love to have played because he's got the part of uh, Bertie Mary Poppins. So it was one of the few times I had two really nice jobs that I got offered, and uh, I could only take one. I wish that happened all the time. Usually, you're just scrambling for the next job, but uh, occasionally you have two jobs and you have to pick. <laughs> That's some great psychological game playing on the part of Stephen Meir and Anthony. Yeah, Trump, isn't it? yeah. I don't, I, you know, I don't. It, it wasn't conniving. It was just no, not at all. They were, they were like, this is the best way to get our friend Gavin Lee, who we think would be good for the role, in the door for the audition in the first place. Do you remember the first time you were given one of the new songs by Styles and Drew, and what was your reaction to it? I was, I was always amazed with their work. The fact that. I feel every new song that they wrote for Mary Poppins sounds like it came from the movie, especially, you know, Practically Perfect. It just sounds like, oh yeah, this, that song was in the movie, wasn't it? And you're like, nope. We were very lucky originally back in 2004 when we started, when we rehearsed and opened the original Mary Poppins, that Richard Sherman, uh, one of the Sherman brothers was very present. And I feel Styles and Drew were very lucky that Richard Sherman was completely open and allowing them 
to do whatever they wanted with his work, his and his brother Bob's work from the movie. So he was there and he was there as a consultant, but it was, it was George and Ants that were going to take this music from the movie and do what they wanted with it and make it into a brilliant musical. Richard Sherman had this great story that they had a song called Practically Perfect for the movie that never got used in the end. And so they adapted the tune into the Suffragette song that we don't have in the musical. So Winifred Banks' Suffragette song, we are da 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 da, I don't know the lyrics, but it used to be practically perfect in every way. So that used to be a Mary Poppins song and it got changed to a Winifred song. And yeah, I was lucky enough during my time with Mary Poppins, whenever we do publicity things around the country, Richard would show up quite a lot and he'd be on a grand piano and he'd be telling stories of the movie and how he was so happy that his work had been adapted thanks to Siles and Drew into this wonderful musical. So yeah, I, I met uh, uh, some amazing people during my time in Mary Poppins. When we did the show in Los Angeles, Richard who, uh, and his wife, who obviously live in Beverly Hills, came to the show a lot and me and my wife got invited to theirs because we became good friends with them for lunch one day and I got to hold his Oscar which was so awesome to like hold his Oscar from 1964 and Oscar's really heavy it's really heavy and chunky and you're like oh I want to hold this forever and I'm glad to say he had it on a mantelpiece he didn't like have it propping, propping open his toilet door or something like that, which a lot of people do. If I won an award like that, I would have a spotlight on it. It would be in a case. It would be on top of the Dry room. ice. Yeah, <laughs> the works. But yeah, that was pretty cool going to his house and seeing all his, uh, his Disney memorabilia that he's got on his walls. That just all sounds magical. Yeah. Every, 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 and every, t- every time you said something else, I was like, oh God, yeah. more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, something we don't see in the UK that much anymore is an out-of-town tryout. Obviously, in America, it's a huge thing. Um, But Poppins was one of the few original shows that we've had in the last 20 years that that did that in Bristol. What do you remember of your time in Bristol uh, before London? And did a lot change for you? Well, I was just very excited that we were, yeah, going to get a chance to be out of town without all the, all the critics being there on the first preview and have, you know, we had a nice eight weeks at the Hippodrome at Bristol to fix everything. And like other shows that I've done, like SpongeBob as well, um, you know, we had an out-of-time tryout. The shows are always too long. They're always too long at the out-of-town tryout. And thank God you have all that time to for the director and the choreography to look at things that are working and basically snip away and get yourself a nice two and a half hour show. So it was great to be there. So many things changed, but I get a little confused because I then, you know, we then went back into rehearsals after the tryout to then open in London. And then you have to remember two years later, I went to Broadway with an absolutely brand new cast. It was just me and everyone else was American and brand new for Broadway. And they made quite a lot of changes. So I have those changes. And then by the time I, we opened the US tour, they made a bunch more, of more changes. So I can't even remember things that were in the tryout compared to Broadway to compared to the tour and London. So I've seen a lot of changes along the way, but it was nice to be with a creative team that did keep coming back and kept changing things and making them better. And even though I haven't seen the the new Mary Poppins that's at the Prince Edward now, 
I know that they made more changes again. So it's really nice to have a creative team that love it so much and they want to just keep improving on the brilliant show that they had originally. I know when we went to Broadway, they decided to make it more, in quotes, Disney. And so, for instance, the original production in Bristol and London, the Jolly Holiday number, it was all about Mary and I and the kids interacting with Neelius, the statue, and then all the statues coming alive. And that was mainly the theme of the number. But they decided for Broadway, they, you know, the set completely changed into almost like a cartoon set of flowers and beautiful Technicolor and, and um, other people in the park dressing into gorgeous, you know, brightly colored costumes. So Jolly Holiday was the biggest change, I think, from the original, the original concept to what they've ended up with now at the Prince Edward, a far more jolly and happy number for Jolly Holiday. Absolutely. And actually, just going back to what you said a minute ago, we went to the first preview of the of the new run. And having seen the, the last tour as well, even just from, from the last tour to this production, they, they did make even the, some of the smallest, subtle, most subtle changes. And it was just, it's so lovely to see that with a show that has been going nearly 20 years, they are still making those changes. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's great. And, and, and I'm sure a lot of directors would kind of just do their job and then take the money and run. But I know Richard and Matthew and Stephen, they loved collaborating together you know, having Cameron McIntosh and Tom Schumacher from Disney, who, of course, are both brilliant at what they do, being producers of big hit shows. Just a really great creative team that I thoroughly enjoyed working with for all those years. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, the the Pross Arch tap dance, when originally you came down in the centre, didn't you? No, I didn't. Isn't that weird? No, I didn't. And I have a story about that. So, I, and now Charlie Stem, did this fantastic trick in Stepping Time where you're on wires and you're facing the wing and they bring the wings, they bring in like these massive walls so that you can walk up the side of the proscenium arch, tap upside down on top of the proscenium arch, upside down, turn in the middle and sing a big note over the rooftop step in time and then the music starts ramping up again, all the chimney sweep starts dancing and then you tap over to the other side of the proscenium arch and you walk down the other side. That's what I always did. So then when I come to Broadway, all the new cast have heard about this from London and they want to see it. So when we get to that section, everyone comes out into the auditorium at the New Amsterdam Theatre on Broadway and they watch me do my walk around for the first time. And of course, I've been doing it for two years. So, you know, it, it's is pretty much like 100% how it's going to be. So, it, it, you know, I can, I can do it pretty well. And I finish it and I all applaud and they're all lovely. And, and they went, that's fantastic. Oh my gosh, how do you do that? And they went, why have you changed it since the West End? Because in the West End, just like you said, you came down the middle, didn't you? And I said, no, I go, I, what well, I just did all the way around. And I said, oh, we've all watched it on YouTube and you come down the middle. And someone had recorded a bootleg of the one night in the West End where I sung the bit in the middle upside down and the computer went wrong. And so the next cue on the computer to take me to the to stage right on the upside down on Passage, it didn't work. But they have this exit button on the computer. So basically if, it, if the, the program goes wrong, you can press a button, it will just slowly lower you down on your wires. And that is the one time that it was recorded by someone in the audience and it went on youtube and all the broadway cast 
thought that's what's happened. So what I did is as it started to lower me down, I kind of span round like you do, like I'm in Cirque du Soleil or something. And I span down and I landed on the, in the middle of the stage and unclipped myself and the wires gradually went away and we finished the number. And I, I just thought it was so amazing that the whole Broadway cast, and obviously you have seen that and you think that that's what it was originally. But no, what Charlie, or I'm presuming what Charlie Stemp does now is exactly what I have always done and what all the birds yeah. have always done. So isn't that weird? That's a wonderful thing about people doing bootlegs and things going up on YouTube, especially when it's a one-off and it only happened, happened once, but so many people probably think, oh, that's what was supposed to happen. It's because I was so brilliant and I made it look like that was what was supposed to happen. But there you go. But in reality, I was coming down, spinning around going, oh my God, what's happening? This isn't supposed to happen. What am I going to do when I hit the stage? <laughs> well, there you go. You obviously got away with it. I did. You did your final audition with Laura Michelle Kelly and then you did the show with her, I'm guessing like hundreds of times after yep. that. Yeah. What was your partnership with her like? You must have formed a really strong bond. She was wonderful. Do you know what the best thing about that? Laura did the first year and then Scarlett Strallen came in and I'd done Peggy Sue Got Married with Scarlett, so I knew her very well. And we had a fabulous time. And then I left uh, Scarlett's day and I left to come to Broadway with Ashley Brown. The, uh, the really cool thing is, let me think, one, two, three, four, five years after I'd originally done the show with Laura, McKelly, uh, Laura Michelle Kelly in London, while I was on the American tour, she started doing it on Broadway and then I came back to Broadway. So I was so happy to get to do Broadway with my original Mary Poppins from London five years after I'd first done the show. I can give you opinions of all the Mary Poppins and kind of their, their, their best trait that they brought to Mary Poppins. You know, some of them sang brilliantly. Some of them acted it brilliantly. Some of them were really funny. Some of them could dance it brilliantly. I, but I always say about Laura is, Laura just is Mary Poppins. She just is. Like in her everyday life, she just has this aloofness, this um, just so calm and a beautiful spirit. And she just nailed the role of Mary Poppins, you know, hence she won the Olivier for it. She's just, she's just a wonderful person and a wonderful performer. She can sing anything and she can, uh, she can, she doesn't, I never think she looks like she's acting. She just is. She just is like after Poppins, she went on to play the, what's the female role in Lord of the, Lord of the Rings at uh, Drury Lane. And oh, I can't remember. I know the song, the song Lothlorien. I can't remember the character name. Yes, Some, like an elf thing. Or... Yes, yes. But she, that the same. I was like, you're not acting. You are just being. And that's a sign of being a brilliant actor, actress, I guess. Yeah. And that, her voice is just, I always just say is ethereal. I, she did Cadogan Hall last year, I think it was, uh -huh. and just blew the roof off. Yeah. She just, she's got every Stunning. note you could ever want to sing in her little voice box. <laughs> So when you got the call to go to Broadway the first time round, you arrived and suddenly you are nominated for an Outer Critics Circle Award. You are nominated for a Tony Award. You win a Drama Desk Award and an Outstanding Broadway Debut Award at the Theatre World Awards and your caricature is added to Sardis. <laughs> How on earth do you process all of that? And is it three, four, five years later when you look back and go, huh, that was pretty big? It was 
it was epic. It was an epic year opening on. Well, first of all, I never thought I was going to be on Broadway. I was an English actor. How was I ever going to, you know, you can't just pop over to America and audition and get a job. You've got to have a green card, you, you know, blah, blah, blah. So luckily my wife is American. So um, as soon as we were married, Tom Schumacher from Disney just kind of in my ear said, I suggest you start applying for your green card through marriage. He said, this isn't a job offer or anything like that. We are auditioning for every role on Broadway for the Broadway production. And I knew the day of the last callbacks in New York. And so, and I knew that I was being considered to go to Broadway. I also knew that basically the last, one of the last Burt's on Broadway to be auditioning was Gavin Creel. How, what a brilliant talent is that? And I came off stage from the finale on that, on that day and my phone rang in my dressing room at the Prince Edward and it was Cameron, who of course was five hours behind because it was about 10.30 at night. So it was like 5.30 at night in New York and he called to say, so do you want to go to Broadway? And I was like, no, I'm all sweaty from the, you know, from doing the bows, from doing the whole show yeah, and I'm yeah. still in my birth stuff and I'm just going mad and just crazy with, you know, I've just been offered Broadway. So um, the very first day, I, 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 my wife and I moved to New York and we um, decided to go and live in an apartment up at 181st Street. So I used to take the A train down to Times Square and that first day of walking up from the subway and, and the Times Square stop is 42nd Street. I mean, how cool is that? The theater we performed at, the New Amsterdam, is on 42nd Street. The rehearsal studios was on 42nd Street. So I walk up the 42nd Street subway stop and I get out. And 42nd Street, for anyone that doesn't know, is just filled with lights. It's like another Times Square, really. And I'm, I'm walking along with a jaunty saunter, just like Bert does in Jolly Holiday, a jaunty saunter. And I can see the Mary Poppins marquee at the New Am. And I walk into the rehearsal room and I'm like, I have made it. Here I am. Here I am. I'm going to be on Broadway. And then we opened to brilliant reviews, to sold out houses. And then all the nominations started coming in a few months later. And it just was a whirlwind of unbelievable pinch me. I'm here. And then get to get to do Step in Time at Radio City Music Hall for the Tony Awards was just like mind blowing because Radio City is an amazing theatre. It holds over 5,000. So the average big theatre in London and Broadway is about 15, 1,600. So 5,000 people are staring at you. It's a live broadcast on CBS TV. And you know that those 5,000 people are all your peers or all theatre industry people. So it's way more nerve-wracking than having a regular audience. And to be able to do Second Time... Um, on that Radio City stage was just amazing. I think the Tony Awards was probably the highlight of my whole Poppins in America experience. And then 11 years later with SpongeBob to get nominated again, and then they pick my number from SpongeBob to do on the Tonys. I was way more nervous for that performance than I was 11 years early with Mary Poppins. I don't know why, but it was all the same, you know, the industry people out there and, um, so to get to perform on the Tonys twice, I never thought I was going to get any kind of nominations again after Poppins. So that was a pretty nice cherry on top of the already fabulous amount of 
icing on the cake. <laughs> Absolutely. I do have questions about SpongeBob. I just have a couple more about Poppins. Okay. Did anyone ever ask for help with the accent when you were on Broadway or in, on the tour? Did they ask? They, no, they didn't really ask. They, because we, they had dialect coaches, you know, the same as any American show I've done in London there's always a dialect coach that is an expert. Um, usually, usually for an American show, you're just doing a standard um, American. I know when I did Oklahoma at the National um, with Trevor Nunn, um, we all couldn't just do our crappy Southern accent, you know, Southern America. We had to do Oklahoman, which was different from like, we were all just doing a cowboy kind of Texan sort of thing. So, you know, these shows, they take it very seriously. So, yeah, every, every American who was doing an English accent had to have quite a few dialect um, lessons. They came up to me occasionally and said, oh, or I'd be ballsy. And I'd say, I hope you don't mind me saying, but you can't say, I can't think of any words now, but they'd be saying a certain word. And I'm like, you have to say it like this. And they're like, oh, okay, thanks very much. I mean, maybe afterwards they go, oh, who's he think he is telling me how to do my accent? But I know if I was in... Certainly, if I was in a show in America and I was doing an American accent, I would want every single member of the cast to come up to me every time I was not doing my American accent properly because that would be my bugbear that people were like, oh, he's obviously British because his American accent is awful. You know, so that's something that I would really, really work on. And I want anyone to tell me what I was doing when I was doing something wrong. <laughs> Definitely. I, I would be exactly the same. Yeah. At the start of last year, I came, uh, went to BroadwayCon in, in New York in January, which was amazing. And there was this Disney on Broadway talk and it was people like Ashley Brown, Christian Ball and, and uh, various other people. And Ashley Brown told this amazing story how it was something like the third or fourth preview when she got sick. And she they, she had to go on and do the show and she yeah. thought she was going to throw up. Yeah. And then she's flying across at yeah. the end of Act One and lo and behold, ended up uh, vomiting in a bucket where they kept the umbrellas. Um, do you have any similar stories from your time in the show or, or any of Ashley Brown's other antics? I, oh, gosh, me and Ashley, my gosh. We, we kept it together on stage. We were pretty professional, but she is a hilarious girl. She, we are such best friends. She moved out to New Jersey, like she lives 10 minutes from me in New Jersey because we were there. She's like, well, I'm coming to live with my family out there as well. You know, most people in New York, when you start, when you get married and then you start having kids, you're like, I don't need to be living in a New York apartment anymore because the rent is so high and you're, you're living in like a shoebox for like thousands of dollars a month. So a lot of people who start having families move out to my area. There's a lot of, we call it the Broadway train, like the 11 o'clock train from Penn Station out to Maplewood, where I live, is obviously full of theatre goers, but also actors that have finished their shows and they're on the way back to the suburbs. But no, so I always used to forget, going back to my walk around in Step in Time, I would never remember in between shows to not eat a giant pasta, you know, not to be full of food, because that harness that you wear in Step in Time, it's tight. It has to be tight around your stomach, above your hips. You know, the belt has to be tighter than your hips because you're going to flip upside down and you can't be falling out of that harness. You've got to have it tight. I mean, you, you have, you're not going to fall out. You have shoulder straps as well, over you, you know. But I would sometimes, I'd walk up the side during Step in Time and then it's when I would turn upside down and start tapping that I'd be like, 
oh god i've done it again i've eaten too much food at the local italian in between shows and it would just start coming up and the thing about that walk around when you got to the other side of the cross arch you then were facing directly downwards as you walked down oh, the wall no. and as seven times going on michael and jane the kids were skipping right below you looking up and i swear <sighs> to you one show as i was walking down my food was coming up my throat it was coming out and i was like a i'm going to project our vomit directly down on stage in front of the audience but b is going to land on these kids because they're happily skipping around da, 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 looking up at me and i'm like you better move kids because it's coming and somehow as i put my foot on the stage and turned upright i was able to swallow back down what had just started creeping up disgusting story i'm sorry anyone who's eating at the moment <laughs> but it didn't act like Ashley Brown actually had to puke in a bucket as she finished her flying across the audience. Mine, I was able, it, it was like, it was just a little bit of pre-puke was coming up and I was able to swallow it down and finish the number. But I never learned my lesson. Uh, you know, the next week I would be like, oh, I've eaten too much again. Why do I do this? Because it would be so painful in your stomach if you're upside down trying to dance with too much food in your stomach. But um, that was my, that was the one mishap uh, food-wise that I had. <laughs> But I guess, I mean, Bert requires so much energy. If On the flip side, if you haven't eaten enough, you, yeah. you, know, you can't flatline halfway through a show. You have, to get, you have to get it right. You have to have so much energy for three numbers. Jolly Holiday, Super Cal, and Stepping Time used to kill me. So you've got to eat the right things to give you that energy, but not too much so that it loads your body down. I mean, I don't know how any, all those hundreds and hundreds of actors that, that did the show cats there's so much dancing and b you're in a you're in a cat suit so you want to look slim and nice all the time but you're but like i say you have to have enough food inside you fuel to give you the energy to do the jellicle ball every night and step in time i think felt like the jellicle ball to me and sometimes i'd fall back on caffeine you know i'd like half in, in, in the interval i'd have to have a strong coffee Occasionally, I'd have one of those terrible, you know, five-hour energy things if I was really having a tough matinee day. Um, I'd drink half of one of those to give me that boost, which, you know, I don't recommend because I'm sure they're just chemicals full of absolute rubbish. But you do what you have to do to make sure you're giving. The, like people often said to me, how did you do eight years in the same show and keep the role fresh? Hopefully, I was able to do that for the eight years. But I'd always go back to my opening night in london and on broadway were i was on such a high a natural adrenaline high and so was the audience and just because the audience didn't get to see that opening night they got to see me play the role seven years later doesn't give me the right to be like you're not going to get that opening night performance because i've been doing it seven years and i'm not in the mood they've still paid 150 200 to come and see the show so that's always my um my therapy is like and remember what you were like on your opening night. You have to do that every night. You can't be lazy because there's so many hundreds of actors that are lined up behind you that would give anything to be playing the role you're playing, to, to be able to say, I'm on Broadway. And so never take it for granted and um, always give that 100% because they've paid the same amount of money as the people did on opening night. 
Were there any particular moments in the show that sort of helped bring that feeling home? I'm, I'm guessing things like anything can happen if you let it. You must be standing there going, I'm on Broadway. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the, the new songs, obviously written by Styles and Drew. And the very end of that number, when the big, you know, giant umbrella comes down and there's this, the star lighters are everywhere and the set is just so beautiful. It's like every single character in the show is suddenly up in heaven or somewhere, wherever Mary Poppins has taken us at that point. And I remember I would finish the number right at the front on my knee with everyone behind me. I was like the point of like the triangle of everyone looking out and the, all the star lights from the stage used to turn these very lights and go zoop and zoom out into the audience. So even the auditorium looked like it was filled with a thousand stars. And it was such a brilliantly written song by Stiles and Drew. I used to finish that number with a massive smile on my face and just thinking, yeah, anything can happen if you let it. You can, you can be a kid that enjoyed doing dance class when you were 10 and then suddenly you can be on Broadway, you know? So, so yeah, that was one of the highlights for me. And of course, the end of Step in Time, you always used to get such an applause. Occasionally we'd get standing ovation at the end of that number. And of course, you'd be like, look what's happening to me. I'm in this fantastic show. There's a massive hit in London and on Broadway and I'm getting to play this iconic role and uh, pinch me now. <laughs> Did you and Laura close the show in New York? No. Um, Laura left the show um, about a year before it closed and I left the show about two months before it closed because I got offered to take over from Tom Chambers in Top Hat. So that was a real, real exciting for me because I've been playing this role of Bert for eight years. It, it was hard for me to ever give it up because it was such an amazing role and I loved it. And by this time, my wife was in the Broadway production as well. So why would I ever leave such a great role? So then to just get a phone call from my British agent after being in New York for six years to say, hey, you've been offered to take over from Tom Chambers in Top Hat. That at that time, I hadn't even heard what Top Hat was because I'm in New York and I guess I wasn't keeping up with London theatre too much. And I flew over to, uh, I got two days off from Mary Poppins so I could fly over and watch the show to check I wanted to do it. I mean, who did I think I was? Of course I was going to do it. It was like... <laughs> so yeah, I left on a, on a Sunday night. I flew on a Monday. And on the Tuesday, Poppins on Broadway got his, it got his notice for two, for oh. two months later. So we we kind of knew it was coming the last year on Broadway. It hadn't been the fullest houses. We were very lucky that the New Amsterdam Theatre on Broadway is, is a Disney theatre. So they bought that theatre. And we were very lucky, Mary Poppins, that they didn't actually have another Disney show ready to kick us out. And so... That's why Mary Poppins, I think, lasted perhaps another six months longer or a year longer than it should have on Broadway. So we feel really lucky that basically Aladdin then came into the new AM. Aladdin wasn't quite ready to go. So it meant Mary Poppins. Yes, we got another year on Broadway, which was great. And then I got to come to do Top Hat, which was so different for me because I'd been having, you know, being filthy, wearing soot on my face for eight years, being a cockney cheeky chap, going to... And, a, and, you know, a kind of elite American Broadway star, which was the role that Fred Astaire played in Top Hat. And I absolutely loved playing that role. It was great to come back to England as well, to, to be in London for nine months playing Top Hat. 
how was it coming home after this American fairy tale? Was it was it a bit surreal, or did yeah, it just immediately it feel normal weird. again? It was it was weird to come back and 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 very grateful that I just got offered that role. It was all because of Bill Dima, the fabulous choreographer. I had done a Fred Astaire tribute concert at the Palladium. Gosh, I bet it was in like two thousand and one or two, something like that. And it was just basically lots of West End stars or West End performers like myself got to recreate all these Fred Astaire numbers with a massive orchestra on stage. It was a one night Sunday night concert at the Palladium. And his daughter, Ava Astaire, was the host. And so it was just a tribute. And Bill was the choreographer who choreographed the show. He choreographed original numbers, but he also was uh, had the rights to take the original Fred Astaire choreography from the movies. And uh, along with his assistant, Kylie, they recreated all these numbers. And that's the first time I worked with Bill. And he obviously remembered me from that concert because he was like, when Tom Chambers wanted to leave the show, he said, I want Gavin Lee to play it. And Matthew White didn't even, I don't think he'd maybe seen me in Poppins, but he didn't know, I hadn't worked with him. So I was very lucky that Bill was so strong, put his foot down and said, Gavin Lee has to take over this role. So I'm very grateful for Bill. <laughs> but yes, coming back to the West End, all my friends were still there, and it, uh, but many shows had changed in six years. And it was a, just a thrill to then get to, to do the Olivier's because the show got nominated and won Best Musical. So yeah, to do the Olivier's at the Royal Opera House, I'd never done that before. It was pretty cool. It was great. Was that the first time you were offered a part without having to audition? I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a, a really big deal. It hasn't happened that often. I got offered, the only other thing is, I think I got offered The Grinch. So after Spongebob, I got offered to play The Grinch, which I believe just uh, had its first time in the UK with Edward Baker Dooley. This, uh, he did the tour of The Grinch in the UK. So I was like, I was, I, I was kind of texting with him saying, oh, it's an amazing role because I got to do it at Madison Square Garden which is this massive 6,000 seat theatre in New York. And so that was the only other time I think I've just outright been offered a role. And it makes you feel so cool to just be offered a role. I wish it happened more often, but it doesn't. I still have to audition like everyone else. <laughs> Thankfully, through marriage, you, you were able to have residents in the UK and the yep, US. Yep. So you've been able to work on both sides of the Atlantic. Do you have a preference and what have been your favourite shows that you've seen in New York since you moved? I don't have a preference. Uh, a lot of people say, what are the differences? What are the main differences between the West End and, and Broadway? And I have to say, most of the London and Broadway theatres are 100 years old. So you walk through the stage door and it just feels the same. Like the theatres are old and decrepit and not usually that nice backstage. Thank you to Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber for, for, for all the theatres they own. They're slowly renovating them and making them look beautiful. But you walk in and it feels like an old theatre and the only difference really is the cast is either speaking with an American accent or an English accent. Once you're doing the show, everyone hopefully has the same work ethic and we're there because we love what we're doing. The main difference is, and I, I used to kind of roll my eyes at this in the West End, but now I wish that they did it on Broadway. In a West End show, in general, in your contract, it's, you know, when, they, when you're talking about the hours you can work per week, obviously doing eight shows a week, it doesn't add up to 40 hours. But in the contract, usually for a West End show, 
they include that you have to be in half hour before the half hour call to go down to stage and do a 15 minute vocal warm up and a 15 minute physical warm up. And I used to, no one, in general, no one wants to do that every day. The lazy side of you is like, oh, I've got to go down and do warm up before the show. They don't have that on Broadway. So on Broadway, you just have to be in on the half. You go to your dressing room, you do your own warm up, warm up if you want to. You get in your costume, you come down for Act One Beginners. So I would find on Broadway, sometimes I'd see someone in the street, a, a girl say, and I'd go, oh, you've had your hair cut short. And they'd say, oh, yeah, I had that done four months ago. But on Broadway, unless you make an effort to go around to other people's dressing rooms, you only see people in costume. And you only see them like under the stage during scenes or in the wings. Whereas the really nice thing that I've learned now that I miss is in the West End, you all come down half hour before the half in your day wear. And yes, you should be doing the warm up, but you basically you chat and you catch up on what you did, what your lives are like. And you see people in their regular clothes, not dressed up in a, as a stupid clown or whatever you're dressed up in for a show. And I miss that on Broadway because, yeah, the lazy side of me would just get in just before the half. I'd go straight to my dressing room and I'd get in my costume. And I wouldn't make the effort to go around and see everyone in their dressing rooms. And so that's the main difference. And I wish American equity would have that put in, in our contracts that we have to do a warm up together as a team. Because also in the West End, when that happens, if the assistant director or choreographer has any notes for you, he can give you group notes there and then. Whereas on Broadway, you, they all come around individually and they normally have little cards that they leave on your dressing room with notes. Um, and they can be group notes, but they have to kind of write them out to everyone because you don't get to ever, unless you're called in for an afternoon rehearsal, you're not all together in one group where the director can speak to you. And it's, so that's a really nice thing about the West End. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. What have been your favourite Broadway productions that you've seen while you've been out there? What have been my favourite? Well, do you know what? I have to admit, since being in a Broadway show, when you're in a Broadway show, you don't get to see much. And then when I moved half hour out and I started having a family, I really haven't seen that many shows in the last 10 years. I did recently see Come From Away because a good friend of mine was playing the pilot, the female kind of lead. And I absolutely loved the simplicity of Come From Away, how there's no set, there's like a couple of trees and it's a bunch of chairs and basically everyone puts a hat on because everyone plays two roles and either put a hat on or a scarf on to depict which character they're playing. And it's proof that you don't need to spend $20 million on a show on a set and costumes because that show was just brilliant. So that's been my favorite thing in the last uh, year or so. Saying that I am a sucker for a massive production show, like big sets, loads of costumes, wonderful props, big cast. I love it. I just love where I can see where my money's being spent. I've spent $200 yes. on this show. So where, it, oh, there it is. I can see that set. I love a set coming out the floor. I love, I love going, how have they fit all that set in those wings? I know what size those wings are. And it just, it just amazes me. And so, yeah, I'm going to put um, Come From Away as being my sort of top choice from the last uh, Tony season. Yes, yeah, it's, it's fabulous. 
Are you someone who listens to a lot of cast albums, cast recordings, show stuff uh, in your spare time? Or are you someone who just kind of shuts the theatre away when you come home? I am. I'm not. I do shut it away. As a, as a college student and then into my 20s, I had every single album that you could get. And it's all I listened to, like when I was doing my housework or anything. Every day I put on a cast album. I loved it. And... I think I think it's mainly as I've got I now have kids so we have kids music on we have Nickelodeon on we have the Disney stuff on and I don't have as much time I just don't have I've got three kids so I don't have time to myself I haven't read a book for years because I have this nine-year-old seven-year-old and a three-year-old when the three-year-old is finally in school I'm not wishing her life away, but oh my gosh, when she's in school and me and my wife have nine till three every day in our house to do whatever we want, I'm going to sit and listen to cast albums. I'm going to sit and read books. I'm going to sit and watch Netflix shows that I just don't have the time to watch. So no, I don't listen to much. Do you know what I have discovered through, um, I, do, I do a lot of online teaching at the moment. Mm-hmm. I do lots of private sessions. And when I do my song interpretation, sessions with students i'm hearing so many songs from shows that i should know like lots of people sing stuff from dear evan hansen and anastasia and the great comet and moulin rouge and they're not necessarily albums that i listen to much but i hear someone sing it and i like to do a bit of research so they send me the song before i have my class with them so then i listen to the song and so i am learning about a lot more cast albums that are out recently it's quite a nice way to to discover things, I guess. Yeah, and I've got I've actually got a list on my phone of like a student sung a song, and I'm like, when I need a new song, I'm, and I've got a list of songs that I really like that are more re- recent. Because of course, you know, I'm so lazy. I'm singing songs that still that I sung in college thirty years ago. You know, you can't get away with just singing George Gershwin songs anymore, which is what I'd like <laughs> to do. <laughs> oh gosh, I mean, the the list of recommendations that anyone could give you would be would exactly. be incredibly long. I though. know, I know. We, we have to talk about Spongebob a little bit. Sadly, I didn't get to see it on Broadway, but I have watched the, the filmed version, uh-huh. um, which I believed was done in the UK. Is that right? That was. So did they fly everybody over? So random. So we did a tryout in Chicago. And before we even got to Chicago, we were in rehearsals for Chicago. And we found out that even though our contracts were like Chicago for six weeks, four weeks off, and then start rehearsals for another three weeks for Broadway we found out in rehearsals to Chicago that there was not a Broadway house for us. So they were like, we're really sorry, but we're having this tryout, but then we have nowhere to go and we have to wait for one of these hit shows on Broadway to actually start failing so they can be kicked out so that we can have a theatre, which is always the way. And the, the year we wanted to open on Broadway was the year after Hamilton. And lots of shows deliberately held back the year that Hamilton opened on Broadway because they knew they wouldn't stand a chance with any awards, any Tonys or anything. So the next year, there was like this queue of shows waiting to come to Broadway. And we were like at the back of the queue. So we didn't get a theatre. So we had a whole year after doing the tryout of just waiting around. And after having done the show and realizing that it was just really cool and really inventive and really good, we all wanted to wait around. A few people got other jobs and didn't come back for Broadway. But the majority of us, when Broadway, we finally got the call, we went back into rehearsals, we did Broadway. 
we um, did about 10 months on Broadway and annoyingly we got kicked out of the Palace Theatre because they always had this clause in the contract that when they had the backing that they needed, millions and millions of dollars to revamp the Palace Theatre, they could kick us out. So they kicked us out, which was very annoying because we were kind of on a high after all the award season where we had the most, uh, we had the worst, most nominations out of any show that year. And we were full for over that summer and then we got, we got closed. And then a whole year after we'd closed on Broadway, we got this, e- we got this email saying from the producer, Susan Vargo saying, Nickelodeon have decided they want to remount the show so we can film it for Nickelodeon TV. And we just all went mad. Just how brilliant is that? I mean, any actor out there that's listening to this, can you imagine any show that you did, you had such a great experience and it closed and it was sad that it closed. You never thought you were going to see all those people again in the same room. And then a whole year later, you just get an email saying, hey, do you want to rehearse for two weeks and then go and film it? I mean, it was just brilliant. And randomly, they needed a theatre that was able to have like a workshop and a wardrobe department and... There's only a few of those in America. And at the time they wanted to film, those shows had other, sh- other productions happening. And so Susan, Susan Vargo, who lives in England, even though she's American and lives and works for Nickelodeon, she discovered the, the Plymouth Theatre Royal, which is a great touring house, but it's also an in-house. So lots of shows start in Plymouth, like tours start there because they have the facility to mount a show. It was free. And so we all rehearsed for two weeks in New York, re-rehearsing the show, turning the show in, in, instead into a, instead of a two-act show, like it was on Broadway, they turned it into a nine-act show because we filmed it with like uh, cliffhangers at the end of an act because they knew they were going to commercial break. And we all flew to London, got on a coach and all drove to Plymouth on a coach and stayed in Plymouth for about 12 days and took to rehearse and tech it. And then we filmed it with like 15 cameras in, in a real theater, in a theater Royal with a real audience over two days and all got back on the coach, went back to London, flew back to New York and said bye. And within a month they'd edited it and it was out on, on Nickelodeon. And they did a brilliant job of trying to capture what we had on Broadway. And the weird thing is, the US tour was happening by then. So there was no Broadway set costumes, wigs, shoes, props. They were all on the tour. So they had to make absolutely everything from scratch for that Nickelodeon production, which was a real risk because I'm sure they spent between five and 10 million to do this TV production. And I know that everything has gone in storage into England, in England somewhere because they're hoping that eventually they'll be able to do some kind of UK tour or a West End production or an, a European tour. So there's definitely another whole set of SpongeBob show sitting there waiting to um, be done somewhere else in the world, hopefully in England somewhere. Would you like to come and do it at home? I'd come and do it in, in the West End, yeah, because most people's first reaction is, God, that sounds like an awful idea, SpongeBob, as a musical, uh, including me. Because when my agent called about the audition, I was like, that sounds awful. I don't want to be zipped up into a stupid Squidward costume. But on my first audition, Tina Landau, the creator of the musical, said, you're not going to be zipped into a costume. Everyone's going to look like humans. It's the human version of this 
cartoon. They said, I want you to take the DNA of this 2D cartoon and plump it out, turn it into a 3D real life human with a heart and with feelings. And we're going to go from there. And the proof is all the theater goes in broad on Broadway that thought it was going to be terrible, walked into the theater thinking this was going to be terrible. And they walked out going, that was one of the most imaginative, fabulous things I've ever seen. And on the flip side, all the SpongeBob fans, which there are millions around the world, thought it was a terrible idea. And they came to see it and they were absolutely thoroughly pleased with this creation of a new SpongeBob for the stage. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I was lucky. I, I had a great role and I had a brilliant number in act two, um, but I shared with uh, another 16 people in the cast, but it's kind of Squidward's number called I'm not a loser. And it was the number that they picked to do on the Tony awards. So if any of you are interested, if you put in um, uh, SpongeBob Tony awards into YouTube, you can watch the number and see me dance, tap dancing with four tap shoes on. Which actually we should just mention your costume because I think probably you have the best costume. Like having those two extra legs looks well, so yeah. fun. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think of all the SpongeBob c- cartoon characters, you know, I'm very glad that Ethan, who played SpongeBob, wasn't zipped up into a square sponge. You know, he, his costume, he looked like just a, a regular, like, 18-year-old kid who had this job in a burger place. You know, he just looked like this cool kid. You know, of course, he was wearing a bit of yellow and he wore, he had like checked pants like SpongeBob. And, and Patrick, who's a starfish in the sh- TV show, was just kind of like this, this big surfer dude in, in Hawaiian shorts. But they did feel for Squidward, of course, in the cartoon. He's got six tentacles, two as arms and four as legs. They did feel like I needed to still have those four legs. So we spent many hours, me and the, the designer, in front of the mirror with me squatting and standing with these fake legs attached to my butt with four, you know, four, a pair of trousers with four legs in it and with two extra legs and, and uh, working out how to make these fake legs look identical to my legs so that I looked like I had four legs. And then, of course, the choreographer was like, now put on four tap shoes and show me what you can do with four tap shoes on instead of two. And so Chris Catelli, the wonderful choreographer was again very generous like I said with Matthew Bourne and Stephen Meir with Poppins in letting me the actor work out some of my tap routine which I did for Step in Time and then I did the same for Chris Catelli and Spongebob he let me go in a room on my own work out what I could do with these tap shoes on and then of course the choreographers then look at what you've done and they adapt it because it's their it's their baby it's their is their dance number but I feel very grateful that I've had very giving choreographers in my two roles where I've got to create the role where they've said, show me what you can do and then we'll look at it. They were a pain in the neck, those legs. I fell over a couple of times because when you've got two feet sticking out the back of you, you forget they're there and you fall downstairs and things like that. But also I'm very grateful that I had the one costume that was kind of the most gimmicky and very memorable for a lot of a lot of the audience members they're like oh you were squidward you had the best costume i loved your i loved your tap number you know so i feel very lucky that i was the actor that got to do that i i remember watching you on the tony awards on the night and just being blown away i mean we all knew you could do that from from poppins and top hat anyway (laughs) but then to see you do it with four legs i mean how much longer did it take to to actually put the routine together with four feet than two feet well, I mean, I spent a lot of time with these, with these, because if anyone hasn't seen it, the 
the fake legs, they're like attached on a big old elasticated belt harness thing around your waist. So the tops of your legs look like they're coming directly out of your sort of above your butt. And then they have a knee in them, like a reg, like my legs, uh, but going backwards. And then the ankles of the fake legs are attached to my ankles. So when I lifted up my left leg and bent my knee, then one of the other legs lifted up and bent. But a lot of people would, would ask me once they've seen the show, so did you like, were they remote control? Did you like have something in your hand to make those legs work? Which always surprised me like, no, they're just attached to me. And when I move, they move, you know, it was, it was just a real clever pair of legs that, you know, the designer worked out. But um, trying to make specific noises with those back taps that weren't real feet was really hard. And I learned um, pretty early on that the more flappy and heavy I was with my taps, if I did like a tap spring, tap spring, tap spring with my shoes, the fake ones would tap spring a fraction later. So every, so tap spring being two, two noises, tap spring, I'd actually make four noises out with, with one move. So it, 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 that's how I worked out. Like they're going to make a noise a fraction after my regular feed. So I can make double the noise on this step and this step. So it took a while to work out what steps worked and what didn't. But then I think we ended up with a pretty cool, um, pretty cool tap routine that, yeah, as you said, the first time you watch it, you're like, how's he doing that? And it, it, it just, it was, it was annoying and he heavy and hard, but, I knew the rewards. It just, it looked so cool to have these extra legs. So I was happy to be the, the one actor that got to do this hard tap dance and, and, you know, it got a lot of praise. So I was just very grateful. Deservedly so. Um, I, I have a question about the development, actually. One of the things I love about SpongeBob is that all the music is composed by different either duos or, or bands or, or yeah. individual artists. When it comes to actually developing the piece, obviously you can't have all these composers in the room with you like you would if you just had a, a composer lyricist. So when you're putting the show together, is there someone overall who's making changes to songs or is it a case of this is the song, it's got to work? No, we had an amazing musical supervisor called Tom Kitt who's been res responsible for many um, Broadway shows, um, being a composer as well as occasionally being a musical supervisor. So his job was to take all these demos. So basically, Tina Landau, the director, and Kyle Jarrow, the story writer, script writer, they would reach out at, at a certain point in the show. They were like, okay, we have a song now that we want Sandy to sing, um, and it's about being a hero. She's going to be the hero of the story, but we need SpongeBob to be convincing her that she's a hero. She needs to join the team. And they were like, what do we want it to sound like? We want it to sound like something like a Cindy Lauper, like girls just want to have fun or something like that. So they reached out to Cindy Lauper and said, would you write one song for the musical SpongeBob? They told us everyone they reached out to, nearly everyone immediately said, yes, I'm a SpongeBob fan. I'd love to do that. So they gave, let's say, Cindy Lauper the specs she wrote a song and she sent a demo back and they tina said in most cases the demo came back and it was like that's exactly what we want and they also said we want it to really sound like you so if you listen to the cast album of spongebob you can tell that oh gosh that's an aerosmith song oh that's a david bowie song 
you know, oh, that's a Flaming Lips song or a Lady Antebellum song uh, or a Sarah Bareilles song. So all these fabulous stars all agreed to write this song and, and the lyrics. And then Tom Kitt took these songs and just tweaked them so they really fitted into the show and added underscore to go into the song. And then along the way, a lot of lyrics had to change because of the storyline did change a lot from the workshops to the out-of-town tryout to Broadway. The storyline changed a lot, so some lyrics just didn't work anymore. And it was up to Tom Kitt to, and Kyle Jarrow, the scriptwriter, to change lyrics to make them really fit. But yeah, I think it's absolutely unique that we have this cast album that's been written by all these pop and rock stars. And anyone who thinks this whole SpongeBob thing sounds terrible and you, and you, don't, you know, have no interest in seeing the Nickelodeon version, just ask Alexa to play the cast album and you'll be hooked. It's such a great cast album. I still listen to it all the time. My kids obviously love it. And it'll be interesting for you to listen and see a list of the pop stars that wrote the songs and see whether you can work out which pop star wrote what song. Yes, yes. And I actually think it's one of the best I want songs I've ever heard in Just a Simple Sponge. I oh. That song gets stuck in my head constantly. It's, I just I love it. It's brilliant. Yeah, written by Panic at the Disco. I mean, you know, he's... And he, I think he's, oh. he's done a recording of it as well because he's, of course, got that amazing voice from Panic of the Disco. But he's also the guy that does the, the pop version of Elsa's song in Frozen 2. Into the Unknown. Into the Unknown. Yes. If you haven't listened to Panic of the Disco's version of Into the Unknown, oh my gosh, I want to go to a concert and see him sing that live with our kind of all pyrotechnics and hear it live, like shaking the stadium. It would be so amazing just wild absolutely wild his voice is amazing yeah something i've been dying to know for years about the tonys and actually you're the perfect person to ask about this having having performed twice um 11 years apart everyone turns up in their black tie outfits you know people in their dresses and big hair and and makeup and then if you are in a show you have to go and do a big production number live and then get back to your seat back into your your red carpet outfit with hair and makeup back to normal before you may have to go on stage yeah how on earth does that work, especially for for the people wearing makeup and with, with with having to, their hair done and everything? Do you literally just have to go put your show makeup on and then just get ready again? Yeah. Normally what they'll do is if you're lucky enough to be nominated, they will... So what they do, because there's not that much room for all the casts backstage at Radio City, usually the cast that are performing on the Tonys they'll get ready at their theatre because, of course, the, the Radio City is only like a few blocks from all, all the Broadway houses. So you'll get ready. If you're not nominated, you'll get ready at the theatre and you'll, they'll coach you. They'll put you in a coach. You know, I don't think anyone walks. So you'll get in a coach and you'll go to the, the stage door of Radio City and you'll just come on, do your number, go into the wings, do your number and leave again. If you're nominated, which uh, luckily for me, both times at the Tonys, I've been nominated and I've performed, so you're in your tux, you do the red carpet, which is all extremely starry, having interviews and, you know, feeling like an absolute film star, a Broadway star, which I suppose for that night you are, <laughs> even though it doesn't mean anything the next day. You go into the Tonys, you sit down and it's all being televised, you know, so there's cameras everywhere. And then someone will come and tap you on the shoulder about 20 minutes before you're going to perform. And you'll get up and you'll leave during a commercial break and someone will come and sit in your seat because they don't want it to look like there's any empty seats. So someone's hired to just be a seat filler. 
you go backstage and usually your your dresser from the theater will be there and you and the makeup artist and the wig artist if you're wearing those you get ready as quickly as you can in one of the dressing rooms taking off your tux or your beautiful dress or whatever you go and do your number then you quickly go back to the dressing room and the ward the wardrobe assistant and the makeup assistant and will redo your hair and your makeup for you if you're a lady that's had to wear ridiculous makeup and get back into your gorgeous makeup um and then usually you have to rush back because if you're unlucky you might only have five ten minutes and your and your category's coming up so i think for poppins i had to really rush i had to take my burt soot off and get back into my tux and be really quick to get back for the nominations Whereas for SpongeBob, I think I probably had half an hour, so I didn't have to rush too much to get back into my seat, back into my tux with a napkin, hoping that you're not sweating too much from your performance because then you've got a camera stuck into your face when, they, when they're doing the nominations, you know, and they put you up in a little square on the TV screen and you have to pull that face of, oh, and do the applause when someone else wins, which happened twice for me. <laughs> Yeah, but the words Tony nominee will always be there for now. That's true. That's true. Uh, Until you win one anyway, which will happen. Um, (laughs) I do want to ask you about Beauty and the Beast because this was much rumoured for a long time that they were sort of developing a new version for Broadway. And then you did it at the Paper Mill Playhouse as as Lumiere, the best character, by the way. Yes, it's amazing. Is that the version that they're planning to bring back to Broadway? Was it the or was it the original? What What's the story there? So the story is because I, uh, I I'm very good friends with Disney in general. I still do. Um, thanks to Mary Poppins, I still do my own concert occasionally. Um, I do concerts down at Epcot, um, which is part of Disney World. I go and do my own concert on the Disney cruise occasionally. I go on for like a cruise and do a show, and it's and they've been very good to me. And Tom Schumacher, who's still the president of Disney Theatrical, who was the president during Poppins, I'm very good friends with. And he very nicely came to Paper Mill to see the production. So I was very glad he saw me as Lumiere, just in case it is to go to Broadway. And I was like, look, I could be Lumiere if you want. But I know that this new version is definitely going to be, well, I'm sure it's going to happen after the pandemic now, but it was going to open as a UK tour first. And it's a new, even though it's going to be the same director and choreographer as the original Broadway show, it's going to be a new concept and it's going to open, as I say, the Europe or UK tour. If it's, if it's great, it will go back to London. It will go back to Broadway, but that's where it's at at the moment. And it is going to be a new version. How different it will look, I don't know, because I'm sure they're saying that the Mary Poppins in the West End is a new version. But every little clip I've seen, I'm like, that's exactly what we did 15 years ago. So, you know, they can tweak it and call it a new version. But, you know, it, the original Beauty and the Beast was amazing on Broadway. So I don't really see why you need to have a completely new version because it's pretty awesome as it is. But yes, it's definitely going to happen. Disney Theatrical have given it the thumbs up. And maybe, see, I think maybe after, because Aladdin's still running at the New Amsterdam, which is the Disney mm-hmm. theatre, maybe they're thinking Aladdin will have a few more years left in it. And maybe the, the Beauty and the Beast will come back to the New Amsterdam because they know that's kind of a surefire hit. And they always want to put things into their theatre that they know are going to be a hit rather than trying brand new things that might not last so long because it is their theatre and they always want to have a Disney show in their Disney theatre. Understandable. Just, just briefly, talk me through favorite memories of playing Lumiere. I mean, that sounds—it sounds like that experience was great. But you'd love to do it again. 
I would love to do it again because the thing about Lumiere and and Tenardier, Tenardier in Les Mis, which, which I did on Broadway, is my favorite role I've ever played. And oh wow! Okay, I think the reason is. Even though in my younger years, of course, you always want to play the lead role, you know, Bobby Child in Grace View, Bert and Jerry Travers in Top Hat. You know, the lead roles is what you want. You want to be the lead. You want to be the main guy. But there's a pressure that comes with that, that you are kind of the lead. You're the top of the pyramid when it comes to the cast. So you have to set a tone and you have to have a responsibility you can't have other people in the cast looking up to you and going, oh, he's being a bit lazy today or he's not giving 100% or he's just thrown a tantrum because his costume wasn't ready. You know, there's all those things, you know, you, you have a responsibility. Whereas Tenardier and Lumiere, you're not the lead. And, but you still get the, the kudos of perhaps having the best number, whether it's be our guest or Tenardier being the funny guy in a really depressing show, you know? And so there's something cool about not having the responsibility, but still having a really good role. I don't know, Lumiere, he's got an amazing costume. Um, of course, those candlesticks stuck on your hands are a real pain. If you've got an itch on your nose, that itch is staying there. You can't scratch it, you know? Um, <laughs> but there's something just so fun about Lumiere and Cogsworth. You know, they're such a great team. And it was just a, such a joy. We did five weeks because the paper mill is only half an hour from New York City. And a lot of shows try out there before they go to Broadway. But it's a regional house. So it only does a show for four or five weeks. We extended to five weeks from four weeks. And I certainly wasn't done. I could have played that role for another couple of years. And it was the, the biggest seller that paper mill had ever had. Goodness. So it was obviously a, well, nice, that's a, good omen. a nice big hit for them and proof that people still want to see Beauty and the Beast. So, uh, yes, fingers crossed that if it comes to Broadway, I can uh, hopefully be considered for that role. Hope so. That would be great. Um, well, listen, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. That's okay, Mikey. This has been fun. As you can tell, I like talking about myself. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Gavin and to Wayne Perry for connecting us. Next time on the podcast, I'll be joined by Kirina Stammel, who was in the National Theatre production of Cyrano de Bergerac just before lockdown. And that play was meant to be transferring to Broadway this year, which obviously hasn't happened. Subscribe now to hear more interviews with your favourite theatre artists, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Listening.